This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. morning it's tuesday january the 16th 2024 welcome to now with dave brown coming to you on ami tv i'm dave brown let's hit the horns and go Coming up on the show today, it's Braille. This is the importance of integrating Braille with innovative technology. What does 2024 hold for people with disabilities when it comes to trends and challenges? Rabia Khadar will reflect. And it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Brock Richardson, Alicia Yardley, and Alex Smythe will uh, put their knowledge to the test, see if they've been paying attention to the news this week, or at least the news that producer Paul Daniels has been reading. <laughs> it's an important distinction. It's not, uh, it's not an objective fact of uh, where those questions are coming from. Nobody knows the answers and questions that are on the test except for Paul Daniels. So, you know, it can get a little bit uh, dicey sometimes. All right, let's get to the top story of the day. And it's all about inflation data because Stats Canada released the December inflation data a few minutes ago. Year over year, prices rose 3.4% in December. Grocery prices continue to outpace the general inflation number. Year over year, groceries went up 4.7% because that was the last inflation report of 2023. Here are some overall numbers for you. Overall in 2023, prices went up in Canada 3.9%. In 2022, that number was 6.8%. So put them together. That's about 10.7% of price increases over the course of two years. So some folks are going to start doing the uh, inflation victory dance this morning, and some people are going to do the inflation fear-mongering. Overall, the case is the prices have shot up a lot in two years, and that's deeply impacted a lot of people. Speaking of data that impacts people, this isn't Stats Canada's data, but there is new data about the cost of rent across the country. Michelle Zadakian breaks it down. The data from Rentals.ca and Urbanation shows the average monthly cost of a one-bedroom unit in December was roughly $1,900, up 12.7% from the same month in 2022. The average asking price for a two-bedroom, $2,300, up 9.8%. The report says asking rents over the past two years have increased overall by about $390 per month. It predicts the rental market will still be undersupplied with strong demand this year, but rent growth should be closer to its longer-term average of about 5%. Michelle said again, the Canadian Press. So that's the rent side, of course, in the context of inflation. You've also got to talk about food costs. And here's a story that will impact you depending on where you shop. Loblaws stores, they own a couple of those across the country, will no longer be offering a 50% discount on food that is about to expire. Lisa Laporte has that story. 
Spokeswoman Catherine Thomas says the grocer is instead offering 30% off on last day sale items across the board in order to be more predictable and consistent. She says in a statement, Loblaw has always offered between 30 and 50% off on last day sale items and also offers many ways to save through promotions and flyers, as well as through the app Flash Food, which connects customers with discounted food at retailers. Canada's biggest grocers, including Loblaw, have been under pressure from the federal government to stabilize food prices. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Oh, I'm going to miss those pink stickers. I used to love seeing that pink sticker when I was buying some meat. Nice way to save some cash. And I guess 30% off is still something, but that doesn't feel as good as 50% off. Okay, zooming out way, way out when it comes to the economy. There's some interesting data. Sorry, th- th- this, this segment one is all about data. This is survey data from business leaders ahead of the Davos Economic Forum. Chuck Sievertson breaks it down. of corporate chiefs polled were optimistic about the strength of the economy, up from 18% last year. But 45% were worried that their businesses wouldn't be viable in 10 years without reinvention. That's up substantially from last year. More than 4,700 top executives were surveyed by the big consulting firm PwC as business and political leaders and activists arrived at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. Oh, and by the way, Donald Trump won the Iowa caucuses last night. That puts him one step closer to securing the Republican presidential nomination south of the border. Do with that information what you will. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday was Blue Monday. Of course, some research suggests that it's one of the most difficult mental health days of the year. I asked you straight up, do you feel this time of year is more challenging from a mental health perspective? 53% of you said yes, 47% of you said no. Craft and Deborah writes in, the whole month of January always depresses me. Leanne comments, yes, the endless days of grey skies we just finally came out of makes things worse for a lot of people. Okay, today's daily poll is something that's going to get explored later in the show. It's all about self-diagnosis. Now, the conversation later in the show is going to be about self-diagnosis for people in the autism community. Uh, It's a pretty raging debate that's going on. The question for the daily poll is more generally about disability. How do you feel about people self-diagnosing themselves with disabilities, good or bad. Yes, this is controversial territory, but as a national talk show that platforms people with disabilities, it's probably worth getting our opinions on these things. Let's begin with Laura Bain. Laura, I know it's controversial, I know it's difficult, but I'm asking you that question this morning. Yeah, and I will add that it's it's very complex. Um, and I think that this kind of comes down to, you know, disability as a category is very challenging and imprecise. Um, it includes invisible disabilities, temporary disabilities, there are disabilities that aren't stable from one day to another. And of course, like a lot of services that people need to access are behind that sort of gate kept wall of having this diagnosis. 
Um, and I think this sort of highlights some of the challenges that we get into when we talk about a rights-based approach, approach to disability is that it does sort of require making a category neat that really um, isn't neat. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I guess I kind of want to bring forward some of the challenges that people face when it comes to diagnosis. Uh, these can include financial barriers to diagnosis, also can include racism, sexism. For example, if you think about a disability such as fibromyalgia that tends to disproportionately affect women, there's been historically a lot of um, you know women and racialized folks that have had their their pain dismissed. Um, so I think that we need to kind of acknowledge the intersectionality and, and complexity of the issue. Now, I have a congenital disability that I was diagnosed with at birth. I fit very neatly into any sort of category of disability, any sort of service I qualify for. And there's also, you know, privilege that comes with that. And, and I've had the privilege of having access to retinal specialists from an early age and those sorts of things. I will admit that there have been some times where I have felt frustrated at competing for scarce resources. I'm thinking like at my university when there was only one accessible computer in the accessibility center or for jobs where you, you know, disclose your disability and um, like self-diagnosis is included in that. I have felt a little frustrated at times with competing with people who have, you know, self-diagnosed disabilities, but I feel like the underlying issue there is really the scarcity of resources mm -hmm. and not about policing the category of disability. I think we need to kind of look at the root causes of, um, you know, social inequity rather than necessarily trying to define neat categories, although, you know, at the same time, when we talk about something like the Canada Disability Benefit, which I'm a huge proponent of, I understand that there needs to be criteria. And on a Tuesday morning, I don't have the answer to that, Dave. I, I guess if I have to pick good or bad, which I really can't, I would say good because I think there's just a lot of a lot of nuance. So I understand the reasons that people self-diagnose. Laura, I, I like a lot of the groundwork that you laid there, especially when it comes to the notion of policing people or blaming individuals for what are systemic problems. But I think from the perspective where I sit as a person with a disability, knowing that historically people with disabilities have been marginalized, I worry that not everybody who's doing it is doing it in good faith, right? There, there, there becomes this notion that as equality starts to change the way people who've been historically marginalized get perceived. There are people who want to get in on that equality. And I just worry about the general inability of the general public to operate in good faith, especially in the context of the scarcity that you're talking about. And that's because I'm a deeply cynical person. And believe me, I'm working on it. Alex Smythe, what do you think? Uh, yeah, so to kind of pick up on this point, I, I would say the counter argument to to the fears or concerns around, OK, uh, uh, you know, people who may try to access resources that they may not necessarily be clinically diagnosed as a, uh, having a disability that should uh, have access to it. The thing is, any program, any government program, how often do you use it? You need to have a letter from a doctor, medical professional, some sort of validation in terms of diagnosis of a disability. It's one thing to self-diagnose uh, at home, you know, doing online tests, things like that. That's fine. If it helps you provide answers for yourself or, or uh, kind of the experience you've been going 
going through, that may help spur a, a journey or um, kind of further evaluation or, or a confirmation with medical professionals. Maybe it could even spur if you're struggling to get access to a medical professional that you can come to this conclusion and, and gives more strength to the argument why you should be referred to a specialist or can get an appointment with them. But to actually access a lot of these programs, you need medical uh, documentation to prove the fact that you have a diagnosis in some way, shape or form. I feel like self-diagnosis doesn't like solve that that uh, hurdle or, or that criteria. So the, I think there is still that kind of um, protection in place for especially some key government programs that, you know, there may be concerns around. Now on the day-to-day -day level, that's a different story. But I think when it comes to key funding and support for people with disabilities, there is still that element in place. Alex, Laura, I know it's controversial. There, there's no winning no matter how we frame this or how many caveats we put on it. People will get angry by this question. But guess what? It's the real world, and that's what this show is all about. It's about the real world. So hopefully there's lots of good real-world responses that come in at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, or via telephone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545, or email feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Coming up next, it is Braille Literacy Month. Lisha Yachemovich from Paths of Literacy discusses where Braille and innovative technology can meet. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio form at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It is Braille Literacy Month. You know how significant Braille is for the blind and partially sighted community. It's pretty much the best written language and code that we have. However, there's a whole bunch of technology that keeps popping up that people are asking the question, how relevant is Braille in 2024? Same way it happened in 2023, in 2022, in 2021. It's nuanced and requires perspective. Thankfully, Lisha Yachemowicz can offer some of that perspective. Lisha is the content manager for Paths to Literacy. Hey, Lisha, thank you for making time this morning. Great to talk to you. Good morning. I, I know the core question is a difficult one and a nuanced one, but in your mind, how important is Braille for the community? So it's it's not complex at all. How important is print to the sighted world? There you uh, go. It's the same. <laughs> it's, it's the same question. We still want our children to learn to read. So it's very cut and dry for me as part of a, a warrior for advocating for having our, our students be readers. And technology has been oftentimes framed as a threat to Braille literacy, but that isn't necessarily the truth. How is technology being leveraged to complement Braille literacy? So it, from my perspective, um, technology only... Uh, 
um, removes barriers. Braille used to be very big and clunky, and you had to wait in order to get the Braille materials brailled to um, the individuals who needed Braille. But now with technology, we have refreshable Braille. We have um, apps that convert print and auditory input into Braille immediately. So it actually enhances and really is an exciting time in order to learn Braille because you can see the benefits of learning Braille immediately and not having to be that patient reader anymore. What's the path to make sure that more individuals continue to get access to Braille and the technology that will help them learn Braille? So Braille can sometimes be a scary thing um, if you don't know Braille. I see a lot of teachers and families, oh, I don't know Braille, so we can't incorporate this into our child, students, young adults' life, which is not the case anymore with apps and computer technology. Um, Oftentimes, we can see the print along with the Braille, so we can all kind of interact together. So when we're looking for employment for individuals who use Braille, no longer is it, oh, I have to give you this information in Braille. Um, the Braille user can convert it instantly to print. So um, teachers, family members, and even employers can now um, interact with the Braille user in a way that um, creates no time gap. How does Paths to Literacy fill into that? So Paths to Literacy tries to create a bridge, tries to excite people about learning Braille and using Braille in our everyday environment. Students have access um, to the visual world that they can see print all around them um, once they you know, start to see. So what we need to do is have access to Braille everywhere so that we can start at a very, very young age so that it's just part of our world. If I read between the lines there, how much of that is about getting the general public up to snuff on a general level of Braille literacy, not simply looking at this singularly as a blind and low vision community issue? Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I think that's the key. It's the hook. Um, I have so many um, students in uh, classrooms that want to learn sign language because it's fun and exciting. Well, Braille's that way too. And that's why the month of January is a perfect time to expose our um, sighted peers and population to Braille. Learning Braille is a fun, um, exciting thing to learn. It's kind of a secret code, but it doesn't have to be a secret anymore. We can share it. And if you wanted to um, explore Braille right now, I advise you to go on the internet and do a little braille transcription. It's kind of like if you wanted to learn French or Spanish and you were an English speaker, you could translate it immediately. Now you can translate braille immediately. And even though you won't feel the dots because you don't have the right technology, as a um, sighted person, you could see the dots and you could start learning braille on your own right now. My other thought here, I know talking to a lot of community members, there, there's obviously a difference between someone like me who was born blind and people who acquire a, a vision yeah. disability yes. during the course of their life. 
and I and I've noticed the difference. It, me, me excluded because it never worked for me, and I always had enough vision that I was able to get by. But I've always yeah. noticed that perhaps there's a reluctance for people who are losing their vision to get engaged in Braille. What are some strategies and techniques to ensure that they feel comfortable getting their fingertips on some Braille and getting some of that education when when perhaps things like like voiceover and audio assistance become a much more familiar option? Well, sure. I I think what's important is to to know the individual, just like you said, the Braille was never a great option for you because you had the ability to read fast enough with print and also auditorily. What we need is the, we need experts out there. We need teachers and tech people who know about Braille and auditory input so that we can incorporate it all and individualize it for each person. So if you're losing your sight and you're reluctant to learn Braille, um, what we have to ask ourselves is, do we enjoy the love of literacy? If you're losing your sight and you can get by with a little bit of print um, and it's at a slow pace, you can always hook up to auditory. And that's a great option because if you're learning Braille, you don't want to rely on it to learn new content or it's going to be really frustrating. So that auditory input can be really important. And then while you're doing that, we can also incorporate Braille lessons and get you excited about the joy of reading again through touch. And there's nothing like the, the joy of learning Braille through touch that can be such a, a, um, such a wonderful experience that goes way beyond just listening to a story. Mm. Alicia, I know this is a really important month for you and your colleagues. It's certainly an important one for the community as well. Thank you for taking some time today to share a little bit of perspective. I'm grateful. Oh, thank you so much. I love talking about Braille. So anytime. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, hey, don't don't make that promise if you're not willing to follow up on it, because we're, we're going to drag you back on. Don't worry about that. Oh, absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. That's uh, Alicia Chimowicz. Alicia is content manager for Paths to Literacy. Pathstoliteracy.org to learn more. Pathstoliteracy.org to learn more. Uh, Coming up after the break, uh, maybe not the most uplifting thing in the world, uh, the state of the world's oceans. You know, serious and significant challenges. Lawrence Gunther will reflect on some of the top ones affecting, uh, well, (laughs) all of them. A little bit of uh, doom and gloom. We're all going to die with Lawrence Gunther coming up after the break. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The oceans across the planet are facing some serious and significant challenges and change. Environmental columnist and the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, Lawrence Gunther, has identified seven to uh, do a little bit of fear-mongering this morning. Of course, Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. Oh, man, I feel like the Grim Reaper. <laughs> you know, Lawrence, <laughs> you're just being real, and being real is a good thing. I have uh, steeled myself and sturdied myself to jump into this, starting with issue number one on your list, deep sea mining. 
Well, Dave, you and I talked about these potato-sized, mineral-rich nodules that they're finding on the uh, ocean floor, right? The bottom of the ocean floor. And and they're these are full of minerals that we need for batteries, right? So, you know, there's a 17, 20 countries that said, well, we should think hard about before we, we send these giant bulldozers and robotic vacuum cleaners down there and, and stir up the bottom. And what's it mean for the sea life? What's it mean for the ocean floor? And... Uh, and will it compete with Canadian mining uh, battery interests in other parts of, of Canada? So Canada, along with 20 other countries, has asked for a pause on all this. Norway is moving ahead with their uh, their mining of minerals off their, their coastline and their territorial seawaters. So I, I think it's going to happen. You know, there is a race and, and there is money to be made. And these things are just sitting down there like little blobs of money, right? Like gold, only it's not gold. It, it's just a matter of time. Mm. Resource development in general and the ocean pose quite a few questions. One of those being offshore wind power generation, wind turbines, largely cited by folks uh, who are advocating for renewables as an incredible, excellent option to create renewable energy. But there is some pushback. Why? Well, you know, the United States has, has pushed to get 30 gigawatts of wind-generated power by 2030, but they're facing some issues for sure. They're um, finding, you know, where they put these giant windmills on these floating rafts and they anchor them down to the seafloor. They're not going far offshore. They're going far enough to not bother anybody and make sure they have regular steady winds year-round, but they also need to service these things. They're putting these, these windmills farms, giant, you know, many, many, many windmills in the same areas where people like to go fishing. Commercial fi people go fishing there. Recreational fishing go there. I'm not talking the giant ships that go into the deep sea. I'm talking people who make a living with their own boats and go out for the day and come back. There's also issues about, you know, all that uh, activity uh, taking place around where the whales hang out, right? So, you know, about ship strikes, when you have all these ships out there, boats servicing these windmills, uh, you're creating more incidents, uh, potential ship strikes to whales. And we know the northern right whales are are suffering and uh, there's a lot of strip ship strikes and, and entanglements and gear. So there's issues there for sure. But Canada's, you know, just signed a deal with Newfoundland and said, you go ahead and, and create your windmill generation farms. You can have 100% of the profit and you have 100% of control over where they take place and how they're going to be installed. So Newfoundland's going going to go gangbusters on that. You know, they see the end for their oil production, offshore oil production off Newfoundland. That's going to be a loss of money soon. So they need to replace it with something. Lawrence, what about... Uh, impacts in terms of warming streams. So, for example, the El Nino stream taking place in the Pacific Ocean, I think some of those impacts are already starting to be felt uh, uh, across the country right now. But where where are you landing on ocean warming as a major issue going in going into and through the year? You know, we, we always hear about the 1.5 degree uh, warming of the atmosphere. Oceans have warmed by about four degrees, so they, they've already exceeded that by a long distance. Um, this is problematic in terms of um, just plain algae, right? When you have so much algae growing from the stimulation of the growth from the warmth and the nutrients, you know, it, it sort of creates a less... Um, harmonious place for sea life to live when it gets all gooky and green and icky. 
So there, there's problems there. You know, yeah, we have El Nino the last couple of years, but we've also had a, a, a blob, a warm blob out in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of North America. It's been on and off since 2013. And uh, this isn't going away. You, you know, it's coral reefs are bleaching. Uh, it's causing all sorts of disruption in the in the life cycles of different sea life. When you have all this warm water and and the um, the, the capture of carbon sink from the uh, ocean snow, there's a lot of knock-on effects from just heating up the ocean, the solidification of the ocean. So there's a ton of issues there that that um, are are caused by just ocean warming that we're just learning about. Let's get to the salt factor of the ocean because it is indeed salt water. So let's start on one side and that's salt water intrusion. How is that manifesting as an issue? You know, we've been listening to uh, storm surges and these rogue waves uh, rolling up on the coast of California, washing away RV trailers and cars and tents and, you know, just incredibly big waves. Rogue waves are we're learning about those and and we're happening more often. There's storm surges as well. You know, we hear about high tides backed up by hurricanes and strong winds. Salt water is extremely corrosive when it comes on land. Concrete, cars, anything metal or concrete is impacted significantly. There's also uh, issues with freshwater contamination and uh, rot of roots, you know, for uh, crops such as uh, you know, coconuts and, and, and things on island economies, sugar and things like that. And so, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's driving insurance costs up for people who live around the coast, but there's also all sorts of uh, environmental and economic impacts of, of saltwater intrusion. Of course, the flip side is that as the glaciers are melting, you get desalinization. So what's the impact of desalinization? There's a lot of uh, countries that have, you know, that don't have a lot of freshwater supply. You know, I'm thinking Middle East, Africa, Arab countries, and and Israel, they've mastered the uh, industry of taking intensive energy and taking the salt out of ocean water and then you turning it into fresh water. So they're, they're actually mining and, and, and creating fresh water out of salt water. The problem is it's, it's very energy intensive. So there's, uh, if you're using electricity or any other sort of energy, you've got to create that somehow. And that can lead to CO2 car, uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, a lot of hot waters re return to the ocean from the process and all that salt that they're taking out of the ocean water to make the fresh water has to go somewhere, and that goes back into the ocean. The salt, the minerals, all the other things that are in the ocean water in a very concentrated form is returned to the ocean. So you can see where these desalinization plants are established, these giant black sort of clouds of ocean water that are sort of just surrounding the, these desalinization plants, usually downstream or down current from where the plants are. And uh, it, it's it's a pretty non-friendly way of, of getting fresh water. But if you have the money and uh, you have the need, you'll do what you have to do, right, to, to give water to your people and your agriculture.
One of the uh, items you've got here is one that always captures the imagination of news stations and people online, and that is irregular sea life migration. One of the big stories uh, that's been running in a few of my Miami circles has been the number of orca killer whales floating around the Miami Beach area, where that is not an area where you expect orcas or killer whales typically. So why do you believe that sea life migration is posing such a big issue? You know, we have a lot of uh, sea life that's off the coast of Canada, and we have the longest coastline of any any country in the world that has, you know, habituated and evolved in a way that, you know, appreciates winter, cold water off the Pacific and Atlantic and uh, Arctic oceans. And it can live with that and, and, and enjoys that and, and thrives in that situation. Then you go a little bit further south towards the equator and you have a whole nother set of sea life that lives in hot, warm water year round. You know, it, it's just totally different. As the oceans get warmer, that sea life in the south moves north because now it's got new habitat to uh, explore because the water's getting warmer. So you've got sea turtles coming further north. You've got great white sharks coming further north. You've got all sorts of sea life moving into the territory of what was uh, the principal territory of our, our salmon and, and crabs and so on. You know, even a small change in temperature can create a difference in, in how the base of the food chain is created. You look at the snow crab situation off the coast of Alaska. This is the second year in a row there's been no fishing for snow crab ever, ever uh, announced. It used to be one of the richest commercial crab fisheries in the world. And uh, and because of over a billion snow crabs dying of, of, of starvation two years ago, and again this year, just because the food chain has collapsed uh, mm. down there for, and what they need. So we're seeing these huge changes. Even the salmon off the West Coast, Dave, they're used to eating a very fatty little minnow that's being replaced by more aggressive uh, small fish from the South. The, the Chinooks are eating them. The coho salmon are eating them off the West Coast, but they don't have the fat content that these salmon need to grow fast. You know, these things grow within five years. They become, you know, from juvenile to adult, you need you know, high test food for that sort of growth process. And by switching over to these more numerous southern small fish, prey fish, they're not getting that energy source. So the, the, they're just smaller, leaner salmon now. Lawrence, you want to wrap this up on a positive, and thank goodness you do, because I'm feeling the doom and gloom here. <laughs> Aquaculture, an expression that I've never heard before. Why is that a positive? Well, you know, we have the finfish aquaculture off the west and east coast, and there's some good news off the west coast. They're starting to pull the licenses from these aquaculture farms, you know, these where they just put pens out there and fill them up with small salmon and dump food in. They're causing all sorts of issues for the wild salmon populations. These coasts, maybe we'll see that on the east coast. Some of these salmon farms are now being brought on shore into closed containment aquaculture. But on the positive side, Dave, the whole idea of growing kelp, and oysters and clams and uh, expanding on sea aquaculture is really picking up, you know, they're going to use uh, this uh, kelp for creating uh, plastics, you know, uh, 
bioplastics, for creating uh, food for cattle and other farm animals, and food for ourselves possibly as well. And it's a great way of storing and capturing uh, carbon, right? All that carbon that lands in the ocean that settles down and sinks through the ocean, it gets absorbed by all this uh, aquaculture of, of, of kelp and, and locked in there and uh, so it's a great thing for the planet as well it's a great way to make money it, it really it's just taking the nutrients out of the ocean and cleaning the ocean and turning it into beautiful green kelp that the sea life can enjoy and that we can enjoy as well lawrence thank you for this have a great day thanks dave that's lawrence gunther he's the host of outdoors with lawrence gunther you can find that show saturdays at 2 30 p.m eastern time on ami audio in 60 seconds storms are still brewing in british columbia alex smith will have that in the weather story of the day but first here is canadian press reporter karen rebo with your morning business minutes gains in telecommunication and energy stocks helped canada's main stock index tick higher to start the week toronto's tsx index gained 71 points yesterday to close at 21,061. u.s markets were closed for martin luther king jr day but in tokyo this morning the nikkei index lost 282 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.11 cents u.s statscan is set to release its december consumer price index report today economists expecting Canada's annual inflation rate will have ticked up last month due to a smaller drop in gasoline prices compared to December of a year ago. The inflation rate for November was 3.1%. And Loblaw has confirmed it is no longer offering discounts of up to 50% on items nearing expiry at the grocery store. A spokeswoman says Loblaw is instead offering 30% off on last day items across the board. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Of course, Karen sends that in a couple of hours ago. So you do know the inflation number now for December in Canada, 3.4% year over year, 3.4% year over year, the inflation data in December. Okay, let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, there's a storm brewing in B.C., uh, yeah, Dave, and uh, not just any storm. Uh, this one is known as a boom or bust system. So really what that comes down to is the fact that this is uh, highly volatile. It could lean one way or the other. There could be uh, copious amounts of moisture and snow in uh, the forecast over the next couple of days, or it could be rather mild and timid. So um, as we look into different areas in, in and around uh, southern B, you can find in Vancouver Island, there's going to be a mix more of the rain and the snow because of the warm temperatures that are still out in the Pacific, as we heard Lawrence talk, uh, mention previously. That's really kind of causing the conflict because this storm system is meeting with the Arctic air that's already in the area. So that's what's providing this massive storm system to take place. Now, under boom conditions, if we look at Vancouver, you can see between 10 to 15 centimeters of snowfall by the time uh, the system is over 
into Wednesday. Now, if it is in, uh, if it's a boon system as well, you'll see places like Langley, BC project to get up to 25 centimeters of snow, while Abbotsford could reach 30 centimeters. Now, if it's a bus system, that doesn't mean there's not going to be snow in the area. It's just going to be less of it, because even in Vancouver, there could still be upwards of 10 centimeters with a bus system. So regardless of whether there is a boom or a bust, if you're in Vancouver, if you're in southern BC, be prepared for a lot of snow in your forecast starting tonight yeah. into tomorrow. Yeah, 10 centimeters in Vancouver constitutes a lot of snow. So yeah, yeah. be ready for sure. Alex, thank you for this. Thank you, Dave. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk coming up after the break in 2024, what are the trends and challenges going to be for people with disabilities? Rabia Hadar has some predictions. You'll hear them. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. What do you think 2024 is going to hold for people with disability? What are the trends? What are the challenges? Rabia Khadar has some predictions. Rabia is the director of the national director. Got to get that right, Dave. Get the title right. National director of disability without poverty. Hey, Rabia, good morning. You'd think I'd get that right by the time we've spoken for like the 10th time. Hey, good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. All right, Rabia, let's start with the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. Right before the holidays, the fourth review was finally released. It was scathing, utterly scathing on the state of accessibility in the province. Uh, what are you? What's your reaction to that report and maybe the broader picture of what it means for accessibility in the province and the country? Dave, I feel terrible because, you know, for for 16 years, I was a part of an accessibility committee uh, at the city of Mississauga. I chaired it for eight years. Since 2005, we've been talking about, you know, Ontario will be fully accessible by 2025. <laughs> it makes me feel terrible that we miss the mark so badly. I don't think we can make up all the work that needs to be done by 2025 in the next 12 months. Yeah, to, to me, there's no doubt that they're, they're not going to hit the goal. And that was, that was pretty much Rich Donovan's conclusion. He says that accessibility in the province is at an absolute level of crisis. But Rabia, what really concerns me from the perspective of sitting in this chair, the AODA was oftentimes touted as a foundational piece of legislation for the Accessible Canada Act, for other provinces' uh, disability and accessibility-related acts. So if Ontario, who was the forerunner, who was thought to have created the template isn't executing that leaves me with a really negative feeling across the country with a lot of this disability legislation well dave the key is it needs a champion driving it and i think that championing was there when the legislation was implemented and adopted but over time that sort of government driven passion has riddled away. And mm. I think that essentially 
um, means that it's left up to organizations across Ontario to choose to do or not to do. Um, either they adhere simply to the letter of the law and just check mark off that they did an accessibility plan and they did this one-off training uh, and you know they lowered the counter or whatever it is but they're not doing it wholeheartedly with the passion that and intention that it needs to achieve the essence of it the fact that we have to apply universal inclusive design principles to get rid of all the barriers and also make sure that we're not exacerbating existing barriers or creating new ones. Like there's the legislation, you know, created those standards. I'm, I'm, I'm getting really passionate about this, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. um, the ODA, its predecessor legislation really didn't have much. So the new legislation, the AODA came out with standards, right? So that there would be something concrete, measurable, people would be accountable, it would be enforced, there would be um fines for not meeting the accessibility requirements now what's happening there why have we dropped the ball i hold government accountable for that yeah like you said there's got to be a champion here and it has to be a consistent effort with goals and benchmarks and standards and it really feels like maybe that has been lost sight of whether it be the last six years or even the last decade uh, people have been sounding this alarm for a long time about the way in which this needs to be handled the the, the implementation needs to be handled and uh it, it's a reminder about what is a broad idea needs to be executed properly to get to get the results exactly, that you Dave. want. Exactly, Dave. And, and, you know, I just kind of mentioned a particular sector to you that shall remain nameless for now, <laughs> where, you know, they have an accessibility policy, but that policy in its essence is discriminatory as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there next time. We'll get there next time. Yeah. We don't want to we don't want to tip the hand too far here. Okay, Rabia, let's switch gears here to the workplace. There is a huge push and pull. I would even call it a battle right now between employers who want to go back to an in-person, office working, or workplace model of labor, and a lot of people who are still pushing back wanting remote work. And that is, that is an issue that can easily have a disability lens applied to it. There were a lot of people with disabilities who were very optimistic about the rise in remote work and what that was going to mean for people with disabilities. And now as some of that debate is really raging and the pullback is pulling the other way, how are you looking at remote work heading into 2024 as a disability issue? Well, again, we need to give people choice. Disabled people who face significant transportation barriers, who face barriers in, in terms of just, you know, their personal care needs first thing in the morning, having the, all the supports that they need to get ready for work and to get to work, really, really appreciated the fact that through the pandemic, what they had fought pre-pandemic long and hard for and often were denied became a norm, work at home, because it benefited able-bodied people. Well, 
able-bodied people over the course of the pandemic realized that this was a win-win for them working at home they could you know cook while they were uh doing their job and have meals prepared for their kids and if their kid wasn't going to school they didn't have to rush looking for a babysitter they could just have them sitting there doing their things supervised by them while they work uh, you know, they could manage appointments in between. Like there was just so much flexibility and practicality in terms of their work-life balance. People also had the choice to go to the office if that worked best for them, if working at home, you know, wasn't as conducive to their needs and their lifestyle and, and their needs to, to be socializing and working in, in teams and stuff. So choice is key going forward i think employers are going to have to look at the fact that they can have more productivity on a day like this if they give people the option to work at home if it's not essential for them to be on site why not on a snow-filled day like this where traffic is raving havoc why not on a day that they're not feeling so well but they can still do the job from home Otherwise, they would be calling in sick. There's so many bonuses to being a flexible employer that allows people to work from home in this country. Rob, yeah, this is related because it's also connected to pandemic times. Last week, the show welcomed on Dr. Angela Chung, who's one of the best long COVID researchers in the country, to talk about the state of long COVID in the country and some of the uh, treatments that are now available for people who are experiencing symptoms of long COVID. How are you perceiving this issue developing in 2024? Well, again, we're going to see um, people, you know, COVID's been making another round. So we're going to see more and more long COVID coming up and people are going to require that flexibility in the workplace and in, in society. Like they're really going to um, need the support to be able to work flexible hours, to be able to work from home. People with disabilities in particular who have experienced long COVID again have barriers that have been exacerbated as a result of long covid so their accommodation needs are going to evolve so covid is is going to have and long covid is going to have long-term impacts in society and in our workplaces Let's shift on to something positive to wrap up the conversation. Representation of people with disabilities in the media. Rabia, it really feels like down the stretch of 2023 and into early 2024, the trend is really starting to move in the right direction. Absolutely. We are seeing more and more representation of disabled people by disabled people in the media, in arts and entertainment, in television. We're seeing more of an investment as a society in ensuring that people with disabilities are represented in cinema, for example, in, you know, on screen. Uh, it's no longer good enough for an able-bodied person to play a disabled character. We have disabled actors and entertainers taking to the stage, taking to the screen, and we're creating space for them. And, and I think the best example was uh, the uh, recent uh, award ceremony in which uh, the first blind actor with a guide dog was seen. Yeah, Mia Labati, the uh, the star of uh, All the Light We Cannot See 
uh, brought her guide dog yes. onto the uh, red carpet, which was super cool. A few other examples. Uh, entertainment reporter Laura Bain brought the attention of the show uh, Echo, the Marvel show Echo, that is starring an actor that is a hard of hearing. So you're definitely beginning. Now, it's it's been going on for a while, but it really feels like it's starting to take center stage rather than a side conversation. It's not, oh, here's one or two projects that are platforming actors or artists with disabilities. It's many, many, many shows, including uh, on AMI, DJ Demers, one more time. You can find another episode of that, uh, that show tonight. Hey, uh, Rabia, got to get out of here. Thank you for this. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, Dave. That's Rabia Khadar, National Director of Disability Without Poverty. In one minute, Laura Bain will have the entertainment report. But first, companies are developing robots to take care of your pets. Mike Dubusky barks out another edition of Tech Trends. The pet robotics area has been coming along for a few years now, kind of since a company called Companion in San Francisco got things going. Brian Cooley is the editor-in-chief of CNET. He says a company called Oro has garnered attention for its dog companion robot. It is an actual little robotic device that looks kind of humanoid, a couple feet tall, moves around on its wheels. The company says it's designed to keep an eye on your dog when you're not there. And what it can do is use a camera and LiDAR, not unlike a self-driving car, to monitor your dog in terms of where it is, what it's doing, what its mood and activity are like. And it can even interact with your pet. It can throw a ball to engage the animal in fun. It can also use treats with a separate robotic feeder to engage in training, all while you're not around. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. The things we do for the furry friends that we love. Don't forget, tomorrow morning at about 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, a game of useful or useless will be played utilizing a couple of different pieces of technology that were unveiled at CES. So you want to make sure to tune in for that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. Let's bring in Laura Bain for the Entertainment Report. Laura, the 75th Annual Emmy Awards were held last night to talk about the best in television and streaming. Mm -hmm. That's right. And we saw uh, somewhat of a repeat with the Emmys of what we saw in the TV categories for the Golden Globes and the Critics' Choice Awards. So Succession and The Bear were the big winners of the night. They won six awards each. Uh, this included for Best Drama Series uh, for Succession and Best Comedy Series for The Bear. Now, uh, Beef also was a big winner, taking home five awards. That's a series that I enjoyed this year. And that included Ali Wong winning for lead actress in a limited series. And this made her the first woman of Asian descent to win a lead acting Emmy. Uh, now, some of the talk this morning around the Emmys, some of the buzz is around its diversity and inclusion, unlike some other uh, recent award ceremonies. And also worth mentioning that actor Christina Applegate, who has multiple sclerosis, presented two of the awards, and she appeared on stage with her cane, receiving a standing ovation. A uh, whole other conversation, how we feel about someone receiving a standing ovation when they walk out on stage with a cane, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, also, think, also some complexity there yeah, where she's you know, living with a degenerative condition, of course. But what, what, might, what might make her feel good and might make the people in that audience feel good might not be something that is so broadly good when we think about the way that people perceive disability. And maybe we just leave the inspiration porn there for the moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, and last thing I just want to highlight from the Emmys was that Elton John won an Emmy for his Dodger Stadium special. And this made makes him a member of the elite EGOT club. Ooh. So having won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. So big, 
big night for him. Oh, Elton John. Well done. Getting that EGOT. Love it. Yeah. He had a knee injury, so he wasn't he wasn't able to attend, but uh, did apparently find it very, very meaningful. Well, so, well, maybe if he'd walked on stage, he would have gotten a standing ovation with his knee injury, overcoming I his did. knee injury like that. <laughs> yes, I did have that thought as well. <laughs> um, so in the spirit of television, I just wanted to highlight a couple of series that are coming out in the next month or so on some sort of common, common streaming services that I think people have. But I have a feeling we probably have to move a little quickly here and I'll just ask don't, your, your thoughts on them. Don't race here, Laura. Like the sort of I think you've got four here. Just give the brief descriptor just so everybody knows yeah. what's going on here. So we've got Avatar, The Last Airbender coming out. This is one that's really been anticipated for a couple of years. It's a live uh, action adaptation of the animated series. And so that and that was 2005 to 2008, the animated series. I don't know. I wasn't into it then. But this is coming to Netflix on February 22nd. Uh, there's also going to be a reboot of the 2005 movie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I should clarify, a TV reboot. Uh, so not starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie this time, but starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. And just a reminder that Mr. and Mrs. Smith is based on a married couple who discovered that they are both spies for competing agencies. This one has also been anticipated for a few years. There was some uh, casting changes there. And folks can find this on Amazon Prime. February 2nd. Um, we have Masters of Air, which is a World War II drama developed by Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and Gary Gatesman. So some big names there. Uh, this serves as a companion to Band of Brothers and the Pacific, and it's been Nazi Germany. And the now, the last series that kind of jumped out at me was uh, The New Look. This is also Apple TV. This is set in 1940s Nazi-occupied France. I'm sort of noticing a lot of World War II yeah, stuff. Yeah, a lot of World War II stuff. Holy smokes. I'm not sure what's going on with that, but uh, this is a period show that traces the rise of Christian Dior, played by Ben Mendelsohn, and his new look, which defined high fashion in the mid-20th century. And that's airing February 14th valentine's day on apple tv i guess it's actually going to ha have to compete i think that's the day that love is blind comes out on uh, <laughs> on netflix so it's going to have to compete with that now for me i think that the new look is the series that jumps out at me just because i love anything that's set in in paris but what about yourself do any of these kind of pique your interest of the four that you have described here, the only one that I'll probably go out of my way to watch is the Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And that has a lot to do with Donald Glover. I'm just such a fan mm -hmm. of the work that he does. Uh, he burst onto the scene when he was a star on Community, like burst onto the scene, was such and so clearly like ahead of the game and then of course his hip-hop career under the moniker of childish gambino you cannot tell the story of hip-hop in the 2010s without talking about childish gambino and then you follow that up with the show that he essentially drove which was a tv show called atlanta that was amazing so i think if only to continue to follow the career of donald glover who is a super duper duper superstar who's still super young like he's still a very young man i i, I just think the guys had pretty much exclusively hits no misses so i'm gonna take the mr and mrs smith 
Yeah, you're making a case for that. And, you know, um, Amazon Prime is one of the t streaming services that I have. I did have Apple TV Plus. I don't have it right now. So I kind of, you know, shuffle back and forth between different ones. So that might be one to check out as well. There you go. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. A couple of news stories for you, including a teacher's strike in Saskatchewan. That'll be part of the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and AMIplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, January the 16th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, self-diagnosing is a hotly debated issue in the autism community. Rebecca Dingwell will share some of the flaws and risks with self-assessments. And it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Brock Richardson steps in for Karen McGee to take on Alicia Yardley. And Alex might see who's been watching the news this week. Speaking of the news, the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, teachers in Saskatchewan are going on strike today. James Kennedy, John Kennedy, files this report. The Saskatchewan Teachers Federation says it wants the province to address critical issues such as classroom sizes and complexity. The province and teachers have been at an impasse for months after educators voted in October to support job sanctions if negotiations stalled. The union says teachers don't want to affect the school year, but is exhausting every possible option to get the province back to the table. Education Minister Jeremy Cockrell says issues of classroom size and complexity should be addressed outside of the bargaining process. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And over to the Atlantic region, the federal government and Atlantic provinces are looking at ways to boost more factory-built housing on the East Coast. The idea is to create simpler construction blueprints. Federal Housing Minister Sean Fraser discusses some of the framework. Uh, among other things, this framework is going to include supports to grow the factory-built home uh, uh, industry here in Atlantic Canada. Uh, we're going to include specifically a chapter dedicated to Atlantic Canada in the federal uh, catalogue of pre-approved designs. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation created similar frameworks after World War II to speed up housing construction. Okay, that's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock tying a bow on NFL Wild Card Weekend. The Buffalo Bills are through after beating the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Philadelphia Eagle, Eagles. The Philadelphia Eagles are out after falling to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Brock, it really speaks to momentum and vibes. Buffalo has been unbeatable for about a month and a half, and Philadelphia has been very beatable going into the playoffs. And those are the outcomes that happened yesterday. Yeah, exactly. And I think, first of all, with the uh, Buffalo game, I think what we're seeing is a bit of a difference in what they're 
uh, quote unquote allowing Josh Allen to do. And I and I say allowing because they wanted to preserve this for the playoffs. Offensive coordinator uh, Joe Brady for the Buffalo Bills seems to be focusing more on allowing him to run the football. I think in the regular season, they preserved that a little bit in order to save injury. And last night he showed, look, at, I'm going to do this and I'm going to I'm going to run the football. And that is another element that really needs to be honed in on if Buffalo is going to going to win next week and moving forward, because that's an element that not a lot of teams can say they have is a quarterback who can run the football as well as um, Josh Allen can do. So that's kind of my thoughts there. I think that um, as you spoke about the contrast between Philadelphia and Buffalo, uh, Buffalo's won six in a row and Philadelphia has lost that same number. So it's just a real direct contrast. When you win at the right time, it works out. And when you lose, it doesn't so much work out for you. So it, it does. Yeah. It does help you build momentum when you play nothing but trash can teams, which Buffalo has played for about a month now. The Pittsburgh Steelers might have been a playoff team, but Mason Rudolph, their third string mm-hmm. quarterback, was a quarterback in them yesterday. And if you look at some of Buffalo's late season wins, the floundering New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Chargers, quarterbacked by Easton Stick. Who's Easton Stick? We still don't know, even though he was a starting <laughs> quarterback for over a month. So it's momentum versus bi- vibes. It's easy to build momentum when you're playing trash teams. Philadelphia had a harder schedule. It didn't matter even when they played bad teams. They were losing to them, too. The vibes were bad. Philadelphia, during the game last night in the second quarter, clearly checked out. And that's what color commentator Troy Aikman on the ESPN broadcast said. He said, wow, this team is checked out of this game. And it's wild that in the second quarter of a playoff game, a team absolutely quit on the season. Unbelievable. The vibes in Philadelphia right now are so, so bad. And there's no science to it. They just decided about six weeks ago to pack it in for the season. It pretty much correlated with San Francisco beating them from pillar to post for 60 minutes, and they've never been the same team. And sometimes football is as simple as that. You break your confidence, and away you go. Brock, let's turn to the uh, world of hockey here. Uh, Edmonton Oilers, Toronto Maple Leafs playing tonight in Toronto. It's not that either of these teams are the best team in Canada or the best hockey story in Canada right now. It has more to do with the fact that when Connor McDavid, the best hockey player in the world, and when Austin Matthews, one of the best goal scorers in the world, get together on a Tuesday night on a cold day across the majority of the country, it's kind of worth uh, snuggling up with a blanket and some popcorn and watching some high-caliber hockey players. Yeah, or in my case, having a little afternoon siesta to make sure that you can stay up long enough to watch this game um but yeah it's it's it is uh Connor mcdavid austin matthews leon dreisaitl like the list goes on and on of the talent that exists in both of these both of these teams and like you said and i agree neither of these teams are you know they're just kind of doing their thing and it is what it is but yeah it's always good to get a matchup of edmonton and uh, toronto and i love the optics of what the Edmonton uh, arena looks like. They built that new arena, and I just, I don't know what it is. I oh, just is, love is the game in Edmonton? I thought it was in Toronto. No, it's in it's in Edmonton. Oh, it's, uh, Toronto's going out west. 9 p.m.? 9 p.m., yeah. That's why I'm saying you got to take the little oh, siesta. Man. 
Oh, man, yeah, yeah. Well, that bums me out. Uh, I think what will bum a lot of people out, too, is that it's uh, it's not a national televised game. It'll be on in the Maple Leafs region. It'll be on in the Oilers region in Alberta and uh, maybe some parts of Saskatchewan as well. But, yeah, it's kind of a bummer that Connor McDavid and uh, and Austin Matthews are playing each other, let alone, you know, the Nylanders and the Marners and the Drysidles and the Canes and the Bouchards and the Nurses and the Rileys and the Tavareses. It's probably two of the most talented teams in the league, and it's a real bummer that this game isn't on uh, national TV. And 9 p.m., <laughs> Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. You're welcome. That is Brock Richardson, the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up next, self-diagnosing is a hotly debated issue inside the autism community. Rebecca Dingwell will explore why. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Don't forget about the Daily Poll, which you can find at Accessible Media on X or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's a general question about self-diagnosis, and it asks you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex how you feel about people self-diagnosing themselves with a disability, good or bad. Yes, I mean nuanced question, but heck... That's what this world is. Sometimes you've got to make choices and feel free to get involved in the comments section if you do want to share some of that nuance and why you voted the way you did. That daily poll is prompted by a conversation to be had about self-diagnosis within the autism community. There are people who are utilizing online resources to self-diagnose whether or not they are part of the autism community. There are some concerns or flaws when it comes to self-diagnosing, and it's hotly debated. Rebecca Dingwell is a freelance journalist who's written about this. Hey, good morning, Rebecca. Hi. Rebecca, I sort of tried to encapsulate that a little bit in the intro to put it in simple terms (laughs) for folks, but why is the issue of self-diagnosis so hotly debated within the autism community? Gosh, well, I think there are a lot of reasons, but what I think is sort of the the driving force behind it is that people who have been formally diagnosed oftentimes have gone through a lot to reach that diagnosis. Or if they were diagnosed as a child, maybe their family, their parents went through a lot to reach that diagnosis. So I, I think sometimes looking at somebody who has self-diagnosed, they look at that and they think, well, wait, but they they didn't have to go through the same things that I did. So why should they just be able to kind of wear this label and it not be a problem for them? So so I think sometimes it's sort of like, um, you know, internalizing and, and projecting a, a little bit. I think that is where a, a lot of these issues come up. Process probably matters quite a bit here, though, because anytime on social media, in WebMD, or even just uh, scrolling through your uh, news feed, you come across a meme or a video and you're like, oh, that kind of describes me. Like, that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But, like, that's not a true self-assessment. The process must be a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think it's important to note that uh, holistic people are non-autistic people. 
are going to possess some autistic traits. Um, and that doesn't mean that everybody's a little bit autistic or everybody's on the spectrum. It, it's like anything else. Like, for example, many of us have obsessive compulsive tendencies in one way or another. That doesn't mean we have OCD. Um, that's what, you know, makes it a disorder, so to speak, or a diagnosis in itself. Um, so for myself anyway, uh, my kind of autism journey started by kind of seeing some of those memes and hearing other people speak and saying, hmm, wait a minute. But that wasn't how it began and how it ended. That was just the start. So, and I think that's the case for, um, while I went on to get a, a formal diagnosis myself, I think that's the case for a lot of people who are self-diagnosed, that uh, their journey might start in a certain way, but that's not the end of it. It's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. Uh, understanding that the medical system itself does have some barriers for people to get diagnosis or even get the care or understanding that they want along the way, simply relying on self-assessment or self-diagnosis comes with risks. What are they? Well, I, I guess it's... it. It's hard to say. I guess the the biggest risk risk is like you might be wrong, but I guess that that's kind of depends and comes down to the individual. Like, can you like live with potentially being wrong? I don't know that the risks are as far reaching and widespread as a lot of people um, think they are. Because I think one of the arguments I hear mainly from people who aren't autistic is, well, what if we have uh, people taking up resources? And most autistic adults would say to that, what resources? Yeah, that's what, fair. But like, what, what, what are these resources that you're speaking of? Uh, and uh, in the same breath, look at something like... Uh, escalators that's useful for somebody who might have chronic pain or a disability but they're available to everyone uh for the most part in a large place like a mall and does the fact that it's available to everyone mean that it's a negative thing no anybody can use it if they feel like using it escalator might get a little bit crowded on some days i don't think that takes away from its usefulness so i think about it that way I, I wonder at the core of this conversation, it's about the way disability is viewed because there's not consensus on whether or not it should be viewed through the social model or the medical model. I know the modern trend is to look at it through the social model, that it's not a matter of medical condition that must be treated, but, but, I, but I really see something like self-diagnosis as being landing right in the middle of where those two fights that exist across different disability communities meet. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons I was inspired to think about this, write about this, talk about this during this time was uh, a piece that Dr. Devin Price wrote, and he's autistic himself, and he's a psychologist. And I think that he definitely, I feel like in his writing, I don't want to put words in his mouth or words on his page, if you will. But I feel like he lands a little bit more to uh, the social model where I myself, like you said, I, I kind of fall a little bit somewhere in the middle because I think there are a lot of uh, great, the, the social model is a great tool. 
and it's a great way to look at disability differently and sort of it, that lens I think is really useful, but I, I don't think it tells the whole story. Um, and I think that we need to take these different lenses and, and being willing to look at things from, from different sides and to be able to get the, the full picture of, of what's going on in how we talk about disability and how we view it and how we experience it. This might seem like a, a sharp U-turn in this conversation, but what are some of the trickle-down impacts on an individual's life if they want to self-declare as having a disability versus a diagnosis of a disability? Yeah, so one thing that I think it has been getting talked about more and more is the process of potentially moving to another country. So in Canada, for example, there is an issue of um, basically if you have a medical issue that is seen as potentially putting a strain on the country's uh, medical system or resources, then you uh, could potentially be denied uh, immigration status here. And a lot of people, I, f I feel like it's, it's more known now, but a lot of people don't necessarily know that because it's like, wait, Canada is just going to deny somebody potentially based on a disability. And yeah, it can happen. Um, and I think probably deters people from potentially moving here as well. I know that Canada is not the only country, but, um, yeah, the, the wording around it is, very vague and I think deliberately so, um, so that they can just say, mm, no, and you know, you're sort of out of luck. I don't know how they go about determining whether you're gonna be a strain on the medical system or what exactly that means. I mean, our, our medical system here is already strained. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, th things like that. And um, I think just general uh, dis discrimination, um, I don't know. I don't, I guess, I guess it's the same with self-diagnosis and like there's sort of a, that sort of inner battle of whether you're going to disclose or not. And I think that it kind of comes down to, okay, are you going to disclose your diagnosis or are you going to disclose your needs or are you going to disclose both? And I think a lot of people are these days, especially in work situations are leaning towards, I'm going to disclose my needs and I don't owe anybody a, a diagnosis for that. I'm just going to tell them what I need, and they can accommodate that. Yeah, to to a lot of degrees, though, unless and and I think I think that's where this sort of rotates and spins into the whole thing. A a a, a broken system of discrimination against people with disabilities has created the need to properly self-identify. So where I agree with you saying, yeah, we want to express our needs, but you oftentimes will not get those needs met without adequate self-identification. Like, like I, I, think, I think the problem with this conversation is that some of it's in the real world and some of it's in like an ideologically correct world where perhaps I, I agree with the ideology of everybody should get what accommodation they need all the time. But if you don't self, if you don't self-identify, if you don't self-identify and you can't give people the tangible reason to accommodate you, it's really difficult for them to consistently accommodate you. I, and I don't mean to attack your premise here, Rebecca, because I think the premise is fair. But I also think like inside the disability sphere, we need to be real that so long as discrimination exists against, pe against people with disabilities, then people with disabilities are going to have to do things that make them uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I, I totally hear you. And that's, I know that's a big part of why I personally decided to pursue a formal diagnosis. Um, it's not the only reason, but it's one of them. And I think um, to the degree of what, what Devin Price was talking about in his writing was about kind of, yeah, it's a little bit idealized, but it's sort of about the bigger picture of dismantling a system rather than talking about reforming it. And right. that's not going to happen overnight, certainly. Um, but I think that maybe a step would be to, for example, um, talk more about self-diagnosis or self-realization and the benefits of that or change people's minds about it, give them a different perspective is maybe just a step in the sort of big picture and maybe someday the idealized world will will become the real world or at the very least bleed <laughs> over into it hey, um, it's, maybe it's, that's a pipe dream <laughs> no no but it's worth it's worth striving for right like that's the point of this conversation it's worth striving for it's worth identifying the vision for the ideal world and moving towards it whether or not we're anywhere close to that ideal world uh is is sort of the a, a, a secondary thought but an important thought nonetheless yeah, exactly. It's just kind of, you know, uh, we need to talk about options and whether you choose to go with one option or the other. I think it's just also just making making people aware that there's more than one choice available to them. And it's going to depend a lot on, you know, your lifestyle. How do you work? Where do you want to go in the future? Do you want to even move to another country? Or is that so far off in the realm of what you're thinking about that that doesn't matter to you? It, it, it's really going to depend on, um, yeah, which which path um, is right for the individual yeah. person. Hey, Rebecca, thank you for this. I know it's a complex issue, so thank you for bringing it to, to the table today. It inspired a, a pretty good poll question that I think is going to get quite a few responses. So all the best to you. Great. Thanks. Have a good one. That's Rebecca Dingwell, freelance journalist in Halifax, Nova Scotia, coming up after the break. It's a... Uh, has been quite cold for sports fans south of the border over the weekend, freezing their tails off at playoff football games. So Alex Smythe wants to know what makes for a good sports stadium experience. And I already said goodbye to Brock Richardson earlier in the hour, which was a mistake because Brock is going to be part of that conversation, just like he's going to be part of the news quiz later in the hour. Having trouble keeping my things straight over here. So give me a couple minutes to reset. And then now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and AMIplus.ca, we'll be right back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, you've got a sports guy like Dave Brown. You've got a sports guy like Brock Richardson hanging out for the roundtable today. So all you wanted to do was talk about sports. I have to take the opportunity when I can get That's it, true. Dave. That's so, true. So, I mean, when... When I found out Brock was going to be on the round table discussion, I was like, oh, perfect. Let's talk sports. So specifically <laughs> sport stadiums, because obviously this weekend, as you guys had talked about, was a big weekend in the NFL with all the first round of the playoffs. You saw some frigid 
games in Kansas City and Buffalo. Fans were passionate, but they were also bundled up because it was very cold. It was very wintry. So I wanted to find out, and I'll start with Brock, you on this one. What is your favorite stadium to go and enjoy an event or a game or something like that? Because you have to be passionate and you have to love not only the the event, but the space you're in. So what's your favorite uh, stadium? I have two. Um, My favorite stadium to go visit is the Kitchener Auditorium. I think that is one of the most underrated venues. Um, There's a lot of history that exists in the Kitchener Auditorium with the championships that have been there the teams that have run through there and you just have that old feel of like this is a real barn and it's real and there's um concrete everywhere and i know sometimes when you talk about the sky dome people don't like the concrete everywhere but in this case it just has the feel for that old style the other one that i would pick is the uh, london knights uh barn which is budweiser gardens that one has a bit more of the newer feel London has really tried to make themselves feel like, and they believe that they are the mecca of the Ontario Hockey League. They really believe that their venue is the best, and they've made it look very professional and very assured. This is our venue, and we're proud of it. So that's my two answers to that question. Uh, Alex, I'm like Brock. I'm a little bit of a homer uh, over here, and I think about the arena that I've been to the most in my life, and it's the Bell Centre in Montreal. Uh, that Montreal Canadiens head coach Marty St. Louis on Saturday night was asked about what it means to be in the Bell Center on a Saturday night. And he said, if I knew it was my last day on earth, the only place I would want to be is at a hockey game on the Bell, at the Bell Center on a Saturday night. And I think it has a little bit to do with what Brock said. It's not that it's outright overt history, but there is an energy that pulsates through the walls and halls of the Bell Center that screams Montreal. You feel it in your soul the second you walk in your door, walk in the door, and it's an experience that you cannot replicate otherwise. What about you, Alex? Favorite uh, favorite stadium? Okay, so I'm going to go away from the hockey world, as you guys both focus on that. I'm going to look at Pittsburgh Steelers Stadium. I've always known it as Heinz Field. It has many different names as all those licensing <laughs> rules. I mean, just like the Sky Dome is still the Sky Dome in my mind. But yes, yeah, so uh, Heinz Field, as I'll refer to it, the Pittsburgh Steelers home uh, football stadium. It is a beautiful blend. It's an outdoor stadium. It has that rich history. It's a lot of the, the steel, the iron that builds up these uh, uh, the, the stadium walls and everything. Less concrete, more steel. It is a steel town. After all, it's right on the uh, the crux of the rivers. It's a beautiful location, but beyond that, and beyond the stadium, uh, the the field itself, there is so much small like pieces of history and celebrations of victory within the stadium that I really love. Like they have within these like steel wrought beams, their old uh, su- uh, um, Super Bowl trophies the Lombardi trophies are literally in these little inserts behind a piece of glass so if you're there as a fan you can go and see it they have any of their like uh, hall of fame players they set up these beautiful little um locker rooms cutouts with all their memorabilia jerseys shoes like things from there that are put on display so you as a fan can go and experience it and then you get the actual vibe of the game it's just it's unbelievable it feels small town it feels working class but it just 
feels so inviting as long as you're cheering for the right team i i just i love it yeah pittsburgh <laughs> pittsburgh does sports correctly one of the stadiums on my bucket list is the baseball park in pittsburgh mm -hmm. uh, i believe it's still pnc field uh outdoor just like you said alex where the rivers meet in pittsburgh great view into the downtown core you get to cross the roberto clemente bridge on the way in uh looks like just an amazing place to go watch a baseball game pittsburgh has figured out sports there's uh, no doubt about that I've heard the same thing about their hockey arena as well, that it's just an amazing atmosphere in there. Uh, Brock, uh, bucket list. Where do you want to go for a sports for a sports match? Uh, I would really like to go to uh, the um, San Francisco uh, Stadium, which the name of the stadium is... is uh, base, 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 the baseball, football? Baseball, baseball, yeah, baseball. It just, it feels like it's a good park. They have that modern sort of feel. And I think their sight lines for people who are visually impaired would be really well. So for me, it's, uh, that's where I'd go. Alex, bucket list, sporting, sporting arena? Yeah, so I've, I've mentioned this in the past, but and I tried very hard when I was in Germany to go to a game here, but oh, it's yeah, the Bayern Munich right. Allianz Arena. It is stunning. It is top, uh, like, brand, it, it's, it's, kind of one of the top soccer stadiums in the world. I drove past it as we came in from the airport. It looks stunning. Unfortunately, uh, Bayern Munich were playing away while I was in, in Munich and in Germany, so I didn't have a chance to see them. So that's still on the bucket list for me to go there. Brock, you mentioned uh, sight lines in regards to a feature that would you'd find the San Francisco baseball park to be appealing to you. I had a really positive experience at the uh, Buffalo Hockey Arena last month mm -hmm. where the seats were just super wide. And as a, a plus-size gentleman who likes to have a cocktail and a hot dog while he's at the game and mm -hmm. not be squeezed in like a sardine, I was really happy to find out about the plus-size friendly seating at the uh, Buffalo Hockey Arena, which really worked for me. And it made me wonder if I can actively start searching that out when I go to different games because it would help my uh, peace of mind what's another feature that you look for Brock um accessibility again you talk I I was at the uh Buffalo World Juniors in 2011 and my dad and I were center ice at this event and it was we were just like about 10 12 rows up and that that was great. It was a big platform that had lots of space for my wheelchair. I loved it. It was one of the greatest experience, although it ended kind of in bitter defeat, but we won't talk about that. But it was really, really good. I really enjoyed that. And it's at that same venue that you're currently talking about. So I really also enjoy that venue. Alex, uh, what about a feature that's going to make you decide whether or not you're going to spring the cash for a ticket and even the, uh, the plane ticket and the train ticket and the bus ride and the gasoline and the hotel room? So for me, it has to be kind of the, uh, this seems a bit odd, but like the elevation of the seats, especially if you get higher up in the stadium. Um, I, I remember doing like Rogers Arena. And if you get into those 300 levels, it's almost scary as you're trying to make mm -hmm. your way up to the higher higher decks for seating because the angle, the actual angle of the steps and the seats and everything, you feel like if you fall, you're, you're taking a big tumble. So I like something that has a bit more space that so you're not feeling like you're climbing the side of a mountain to get to your seat. Something a bit more casual makes me feel a bit safer, a bit more grounded because, you know, I guess I do have a bit of discomfort around heights and uh, it certainly can't get activated <laughs> in some of those higher end seats on the stadiums. Yeah, I'll never understand. And, and sorry, Brock, this is a stairs thing. Uh, a little ableism here, a little bit of a barrier for you. But I'll never understand how sports stadiums can have these gigantic 
gigantic concrete staircase with uh, staircases with no railings, Alex. I was trying mm -hmm. to get down from the absolute last row of the Bell Center earlier this year when I was at a wrestling event, and I was like, how are there no railings? I'm gonna, I'm gonna fall down this thing face first. And then you're trying to carry your beverages and you're like, your whatever well, you got those, those you. are usually those are usually empty on the way those are usually full on the way up and empty on the way down so i don't worry about that one as much yeah soon enough you're gonna get a uh the announcer saying here comes dave brown from the top rope especially at the wrestling <laughs> event yeah. but um i know i that's one thing i and, and there will be railings in certain parts and you're just like oh okay great and then you'll do the turnaround where the entrance to the section is and then oh there's no where the railing anymore there's there's nothing you're just kind of you're you're hoping as you're t as taking a step up okay just one step at a time one step be careful be careful the other thing i i just it drives me mad is the fact where you'll get these seating and I've, i experienced it uh seeing a leafs game that the angle of the seating basically blocks off half of the playing surface so you know if you get really unfortunate with the tickets you get you may miss half the game and you have to watch it on the jumbotron even though you're there in the stadium yeah i was i was at a hockey game in montreal once and the uh the seat i felt was pointed the wrong way i'm like why are you pointing me that way point me towards the ice and of course they're fixed they're fixed seats right mm -hmm. they're metal you can't you can't just shift that you're just stuck looking the way you're looking anyway you know you turn your neck you, you do okay there, there, there's ways around that i'll tell you this i've learned this lesson as someone who's attended sporting events all over north america over the course of the last 15 years or so so never again am I going to an arena or a stadium that's not in a downtown core after having to sprint across a highway in Raleigh, North Carolina to get uh, from the Raleigh arena to downtown. Uh, never again. Never, ever, ever again am I going to a game out of town in the suburbs, uh, unless, of course, that's Ottawa, in which case this time I know where the Uber pickup is, and I will not be stranded out in the middle of Canada in the middle of the night when it's <laughs> minus 25. Brock, Alex, I would say goodbye to you both, but you're both coming back for the next segment as part of the news quiz. You may have noticed that Ramya Amuthan is not part of the roundtable today. But there is an episode of Kelly and Rummy coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. The Alberta government is boosting income supports for people with disabilities. Community reporter Tony Fremark gives you the details. And coming up next, like I said, it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. You'll find out whether Brock and Alex have been thinking too much about sports stadium and not enough about current affairs as they go up against Alicia Yardley from the Human Resources Department at AMI. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You know what that music means. Let's fire up the weekly news quiz. Of course, you can't have a quiz without contestants. Otherwise, it would be me just talking to you with no interaction for the next 13 minutes. And that's no fun for anyone. Let's welcome back to the show, Alex Smythe, Alex Lou. Hello, Dave. You've heard lots from Brock Richardson in the second hour of the show. Hello, Brock. Hello. And Alicia Yardley from the Human Resources Department has joined the party. Hello, Alicia. 
Hello, I'm happy to be here. Now, y'all have all played this game before, but let's just go over the rules so there's no disagreements. There are three rounds of questions. With three questions per round, each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the questions without hearing the options, you get two points. If you need to hear the options, you get one. If you get it wrong, there's an opportunity for folks to steal, so moving on and on and on until the point gets awarded. Sometimes it even goes to me. The order of contestants was drawn by Mary Daniel. That's the producer, that's the wife of producer Paul Daniel. Paul Daniel, of course, writes the questions. So the order will be Alex Smythe, Alicia Yardley, and Brock Richardson. Alex, first question of round number one in the world of international news. A group of armed men interrupted a live TV newscast and held employees hostage at gunpoint in a South American country. Where did this happen? Not a clue, Dave. Can I please get the options? Was it Ecuador, Colombia, or Chile? I'm going to go with Ecuador. That is correct. One point for Alex Smythe. No one was killed during the attack. So Alex is on the board with one point. Alicia, you get the next opportunity here. An East Asian country has passed a law that bans the eating of dog meat. What country made this decision? Uh, can I have the options, please? Is it Japan, China, or South Korea? I'm going to say South Korea. That is correct. One point for Alicia Yardley. The new law will take effect in 2027. All right, Brock, the pressure's on you here as round one is uh, coming towards an end. Gabrielle Attel was named as the youngest ever prime minister of a particular European nation. What nation is it? I'll take the options, please. Is it Italy, France, or Spain? I'm going to go with France. That's correct. Everybody's just named. There must be something in my cadence. I'm saying the right answer in my cadence. That has to be it because everybody got it with their uh, one point in round number one. Atal is uh, 34 years old. Eh, it's not too young. Uh, 34 years old. You're basically fully formed by then. You know what you're doing. Okay, 1-1-1 one, one, one after round number one. Let's see if it'll be 2-2-2 two, two, two after round number two. Now, all these questions are related to sports. Alicia, you get the first crack at this. The Canadian women's field hockey team won 3-0 on Sunday at an Olympic qualification event. Who'd they beat? Uh, can I get the options? Is it Singapore, Malaysia, or Brunei? I'm going to say Singapore. That is incorrect. Brock, a chance for a steal. Malaysia or Brunei? Brunei. That is incorrect. Alex, uh, I'm felt, is it B? Is Malaysia. it B, Alex? Yeah, yeah there we go. <laughs> <laughs> one, point, one point for Alex Smythe. The, the Canadian women's field hockey team has uh, set out the last seven Olympics. So there you go. Alex now has the lead, 2-1-1. But Brock, you get an opportunity here to uh, get yourself right back in the game. Brock, as of this morning... Who is at the top of the Professional Women's Hockey League standings? What team is at the top of the PWHL standings? I'm pretty sure it's Minnesota. Boom! 
two points for Richardson. He jumps into the lead. Uh, by the way, in the PWHL, New York visits Montreal tonight. So Brock now has three. Alex has two. Alicia has one. Alex, uh, you need this one. You need this one big time. But uh, you're a soccer fan, so you might know this. Who won the Asian Cup soccer final over the weekend? Oh, not a clue. Dave, uh, I'm not that big of a fan. Can I get the options, please? Was it Iraq, Iran, or the United Arab Emirates? I'm going to go with Iran. That is correct. Iran won the game 4-1 to one over Palestine. So would you look at that? We have a top the leaderboard, Alex and Brock at 3-3. But Alicia, you're still in the game with one point, don't you worry? You're still in the mix here. But Brock <laughs> does get the first question of round number three. The New York Times published an opinion piece last week that speculated on the sexuality of a celebrity. What celebrity is it? I'll take the options. Is it Harry Styles, Tom Cruise, or Taylor Swift? Harry Styles. That is incorrect, Alex. A chance for a steal. I'm going to go Tom Cruise. That is incorrect, Alicia. You get the default point. Yay! It was indeed T-Swift. It was T-Swizzle. They were going for those swizzle clicks from the Swifties. The opinion piece speculated about Taylor's sexual orientation. I feel like that should be a no-no in a newspaper, but uh, there it is. There it is. Uh, okay, so we've got uh, Brock with three, Alex with three, Alicia with two, but question number two of round number three is going to Alex. Navigation company TomTom Tom released its annual traffic index last week. It says that a Canadian city has the third worst traffic in the world. Which city is it? I am just gonna go uh, for a guess and say Toronto, Dave. That is correct. Two points for Alex Smythe. That's a big, big two points for Alex Smythe. Uh, we got a couple seconds here. What do you guys think in the world? Who do you think the two the two cities that were worse than Toronto? You shout it out at me. Who do you guys think were the worst two cities in the world for traffic? L.A. Brampton. <laughs> New York. You're all you're all incorrect. You guys didn't get one or two there, but I think Brock was being a little facetious. Try again, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Mumbai. Incorrect. Uh, Beijing. Nope. Um, Japan. Just throw it out there. Uh, Tokyo. Yeah, Tokyo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, in the aggregate, driving all the way across <laughs> Japan would take you some time. Okay, so. Uh, you're all wrong. Again, that's all right. Okay. I'm, give, I'm giving myself all the bonus points here because that, that's that's what I do as a generous host. Uh, the, first, the, the number one spot, not surprising at all, London, England. Like, not oh. surprising at all. Like, one of the biggest cities in the world that's super crowded. So, it's also old. So, go ahead. Not rock and roll. Number two stunned me. Dublin. Dublin, Ireland. What? Second worst mm. traffic in the world. What? Interesting. Interesting. I, I have been. It, 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 it's, it takes time, but I've been in worse traffic jams in other uh, cities and other countries than Dublin. Small city, small city, 
uh, old roads, narrow yeah. roads. I wonder how much of it is population growth, because Dublin has gone through quite a significant population growth uh, over the course of the last 20 years, and I wonder if that's just the demographics of the city have changed and the ability to get around it. It just does not have the capacity to get people around it. Yeah, no, 100%. I think uh, that certainly can be a part of it because the thing is, if you don't invest in it, as we see here and abroad, you need to invest in the roads as your cities continue to grow or else you face traffic problems like apparently Dublin. <laughs> yeah. Or Toronto, where, this, where the city is like up to like 10 million people in the GTA. <laughs> like 40 yeah. years ago, there was like 1.5 million people in the GTA. And it's like, ah, we'll build a highway. Well, that's not going to get the job done. Okay, I move on. I move on. I'm not a city planner. I'm just a lowly television show host. All right, let's uh, get to the last question here. It's not for nothing. But it's 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 kind it's kind of for something here. Uh, okay, here we go. Alicia Mar Gasarin made history as a particular European nation's first parliamentarian with Down syndrome. What country elected Mar Gasarin? Hmm. Can I get the options? Is it Spain, Germany, or Switzerland? Switzerland. That is incorrect. I believe that this is an opportunity for Brock to steal. Yeah, let's just yes. say, yeah, Brock for Brock to steal. You said Spain and Germany was the Yeah, Spain last and Germany one? are the remaining options. I'm going to go with Germany. That is incorrect. So Alex picks himself up ah. another <laughs> default point. So with that, the winner is... Smythe, well done, sir. Well, thank you. You know, a lot of default points and, and one strong guess that traffic in Toronto is as bad as it feels. I, I, I think that uh, that kind of concludes the win <laughs> that I had for today's show. I think the majority of our control room uh, will empathize and agree with uh, Tom Tom's picks. Uh, there was traffic coming from the west and traffic coming from the north to get to AMI a, 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 HQ this morning that uh, almost put now with Dave Brown at risk. So, uh, hey, you know what? A win's a win, and Alex Smythe is the winner. There's about uh, two minutes and 30 seconds here left on the clock. Let's ask the tie-breaking question just for the heck of it. As you heard in Laura Bain's entertainment report that, uh, yesterday, the Critics' Choice Awards were held on Sunday evening. The big winner was Oppenheimer. How many awards did the film take home? Alicia, what's your guess? How many awards did Oppenheimer win? Ten. Close. Oh, I shouldn't even have said close, but that's that's okay. Uh, the game's not being played right now. Uh, Brock, how no. many awards did Oppenheimer win? You, you were listening to Laura Bain's report. You, you were connected. You better yeah. get this right. Uh, eight. My gosh. Uh, Alex, you have a guess? Uh, I'll, I always had 12 in my head, so I'll just say 12. So Brock got that one right with the big old eight. So Brock, you did a good job of listening to Alora as she was reporting yesterday. Well done by you. Number two, by the way, was Barbie with uh, six categories with uh, wins. So uh, well done by Barbie. I, I liked I liked both these movies. Uh, I'm all in on both ends of the Barbenheimer spectrum. I, I had a good time. All right, let's uh, say goodbye and wrap up the show. Alicia Yardley, thank you for this. I'm sorry you did not get the big win. That's okay. I will um, go with my tail tucked between my legs. <laughs> and uh, Brock Richardson, you tried your best, uh, and thank you for uh, stopping by and hanging out and being part of the show in the second hour. 
I truly enjoyed it. Thank you for having All me. All right, great. And Alex, again, congratulations on your win. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. Sounds good there, Dave. That's all the time there is for the show today. As mentioned, things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. The Consumer Electronics Show, CES, may be in the books, but there's still some reacting to do. There were like thousands of tech innovations that were unveiled in Sin City last week. So it's time to open up the book one more time and play a game of useful or useless with a couple of those products. Jenny Bovard will share her thoughts, as will Megan Gilmore. 9 a.m. Eastern time tomorrow morning. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.